This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Trump administration wants to protect health care workers who object to performing certain services on the grounds of religion or conscience. A new rule will go into effect any day now, and when it does... Colorado will sue to stop it. That's a story you'll hear first on CPR News. State Attorney General Phil Weiser is my guest. And Mr. Attorney General, welcome back to the program. Ryan, it's always great to be here with you. The Trump administration says this rule will protect health care workers who conscientiously object to providing services like abortion, sterilization, or assisted suicide. Why are you suing to stop it? Because this rule threatens to withhold $6.5 billion of support for health care here in Colorado. It will hurt Coloradans, including people, for example, who are victims of sexual assault, who are entitled under Colorado law to emergency contraception. When someone goes to a health care provider, they expect to be treated. This rule can create incredible mischief, withholding treatment from people who might not even realize what's happening. Informed consent is a principle that says if you're a patient and you go to a doctor and you have a range of options, you expect to be told about them. But here, people can say, I'm not going to provide health care because of my conscientious objection. And this is above and beyond the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which already provides a baseline of protection. This rule is unnecessary, and it threatens to do real harm. How do you come up with the $6.5 billion figure? Where does the money enter the picture? That's what this rule would do. It would condition all federal money for health care to Colorado, $6.5 billion of it, if we don't make sure that people have the ability to effectively opt out and not provide health care when they raise a conscientious objection. This is a huge imposition, and it could really play out in all sorts of even unintended consequences to hurt patients. We don't think this rule is necessary. We think it is outside of what the law requires, and we believe it's going to hurt Coloradans. The Department of Health and Human Services says this protects religious freedom and ensures that healthcare entities and professionals won't be bullied out of the healthcare field. Roger Severino, who heads the Office of Civil Rights for HHS, spoke to NPR earlier this month. No new law is being made here. What is being done is the provision of enforcement tools for existing conscience and religious freedom protections in healthcare. The Christian Medical Association logs cases of healthcare workers who say they've been discriminated against for their beliefs, like an anesthesiologist who didn't want to issue an abortion referral. Um, and even the AMA's Code of Ethics leaves room for conscientious objections when it's not an emergency. So where, where would you draw the line? Let me start with the... Hippocratic Oath, which says healthcare entities and healthcare providers do no harm. This concept means even if someone is hateful to you, think about John Wilkes Booth going to a doctor, medical professionals have a duty to treat people. And you can imagine, for example, someone who's a homosexual who shows up and needs healthcare and someone says, I'm sorry, I'm not willing to treat you. This rule goes so far as to give people broad protections based on who you are or what type of health care treatment you need, you may not get treated. This goes against what people have a right to expect with health care. As for religious freedom, there are already protections in place that have been crafted appropriately. This protection is overbroad. It is a huge extension of what we've had before, unnecessary, and really threatens to harm people. Okay, Colorado is in the midst of a lawsuit against OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma. Uh, the allegation is that 
uh, that company promoted the drug in uh, a misleading way and contributed to the opioid crisis, which has killed thousands of Coloradans. What's the latest on that? We are dedicated to righting the best we can the wrong of the opioid epidemic. You mentioned Purdue Pharma. They have pushed OxyContin over a series of years through lies, through deception. They've made a whole bunch of money. We need to hold them accountable. We're going to be uh, very soon amending the complaint we have against them, uh, adding the Sackler family, who is the, comp- who is the family who has owned a lot of the shares in Purdue Farmers, made a bunch of money, directed the actions. They too need to be held accountable. Facts that have come out in other cases, Oklahoma's, Massachusetts, for example, shows the extent of the deception and wrongdoing. We need to hold them accountable and take those funds and use it to support drug treatment. That is to say you're going after not just the company, but individuals then behind the company. I believe other states have taken this action as well. So Colorado joins those states in in uh, targeting the family specifically. You got that right, Ryan. Okay. Uh, Colorado also recently joined another lawsuit against Big Pharma, along with 43 other states. It alleges that generic drug companies conspired to fix prices for medications that treat cancer, asthma, diabetes. Uh, You've been clear that you would like any settlement from the Purdue Pharma case to go towards addiction treatment programs. How would you want the state to use any money awarded in that case against generic drug makers? Ryan, if I could, just a minute on what happened here. This was a whole bunch of companies and executives led by Teva Pharmaceuticals to fix prices and raise prices on these generic drugs, including a thousand percent increases. This has led people to avoid treatment because they couldn't pay for the medication. This has raised prices from people who are working really hard and have to forego other expenses because they need these drugs to survive. This was lawless behavior. It's in violation of the antitrust laws. I've worked in this area for the last 25 years. This case is really one of the bad ones. It's important that we hold them accountable. As for the funds themselves, if we can, this is a principle that we follow, we want the money to go back to the people who are harmed. This may be a case where it's very complicated to do so, mm-hmm. in which case we'd have a broader mandate towards health care and health outcomes, and that's what we'd use the money for. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser is my guest. The red flag gun bill passed in the legislature this year, it would allow for the temporary removal of firearms from someone who's a threat to themselves or others. A judge would have to sign off. Uh, The law goes into effect next year, but it's being challenged in court. Rocky Mountain gun owners filed a suit earlier this month, not so much based on the substance of the law, which they also object to, uh, but claiming that the legislative process was flawed. Let's hear the group's executive director, Dudley Brown. In this case, the Democrats didn't see that they were violating the Constitution to pass a bill to violate the Constitution. And now they're going to see it. How will you defend the law? We'll defend the law by making the case that this law is constitutional. It is a Was law the that process that yielded it constitutional? Our job is to make the case for that. I believe we will be able to do so successfully. It's worth underscoring this law is going to save lives. It is an important measure that will help us give law enforcement a critical tool, the ability to remove firearms from people who pose a significant risk to themselves or others. Right now, we haven't had that tool. Obviously, the law is named after Zach Parrish, who died in a situation where had we had this tool, Sheriff Tony Spurlock believes Zach Parrish would still be alive. Do you think the legislative process to pass it was sort of squeaky clean? Like, did you have confidence 
as the defender of that, uh, that it's constitutional? I'm confident we're going to be able to defend this law. We are the lawyer for the state, and that's our role to do it. I believe we'll do so successfully here. There is an inquiry underway into sexual abuse of minors by Catholic clergy in Colorado. You announced that uh, independent inquiry in February and said that the three Catholic dioceses in the state are participating voluntarily. Um, Is there anything you can tell us about the progress that's been made? I can only say that the special master is working hard on this important work. We will have a report that will name names this fall talking about childhood sexual abuse by priests, talking about how the Catholic Church responded. We're also going to be standing up a program for people who've been wronged to give them compensation. We also have a hotline for victims of sexual abuse that they can call and they can find support services. This is a severe challenge that unfortunately we haven't addressed well enough. This initiative is something to bring into the sunlight. What has happened? How's the church responded? And helping people who are hurt get the help they need. You said that the report will name names. Tell me why that's important. And are those likely to be names we haven't necessarily seen associated with abuse before? At this point, it's early to talk about specifics. Uh But I will say, in general, the reason we have to name names is accountability. There are people who may not have been referred to law enforcement in a timely way. They may not even be alive anymore. But they hurt people. They took advantage of people. For the victims and for society, it's important that we name names and hold people accountable when they do such terrible acts. Improving how sexual assault survivors are treated in the justice system was something you campaigned on, Phil Weiser. And I think you vowed to create a sexual assault assistance unit with specialized prosecutors and investigators. I wonder if I could ask about the status of that. We're working on how we help support DAs across the state. We've got a unique role in our office, which is we are a partner to district attorneys with specialized support, including in the area of sexual assault. And it's worth noting one area this has really been incredibly painful, which is human trafficking, which is people who are uh, forced to commit uh, acts against their will. Uh, We are in the process of making sure we have the resources and ability to support our DA partners for sexual assault uh, victims, for human trafficking victims. This is going to be an ongoing project and one of our priorities. Are you backing away here from the idea of a sexual assault assistance unit? Well, the unit is going to be um, within our special prosecutions unit. So it may not necessarily be standalone, but it's going to be a core function that we're going to have to provide those who need support. This is something that as you note, is a real societal problem, and we want to make sure that we're addressing it effectively here in Colorado. You're part of a coalition that sent a letter to Congress asking for a bill to give marijuana-related businesses access to the federal banking system. Uh, These businesses don't have access right now because marijuana is still federal, uh, illegal federally. Uh, Why is it important to you as the state's top law enforcement official? I'm curious. We here in Colorado have made a decision We're not going to put people in jail for using marijuana or for selling it. We're going to tax it. We're going to regulate it. Our public safety, our policy is threatened by the fact that companies here in Colorado can't use the banking system. They actually have piles of cash in their businesses. They do business in cash. It's just not as safe. We got 38 AGs in total 
bipartisan group. It is now the official policy of the National Association of Attorneys General. Hmm. That's something our office led to send a clear message to Congress. We need action here to help protect public safety and do what's right and follow common sense. And that's allow marijuana businesses access to the banking system. Thanks for being with us, Attorney General. It's always a pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for your great work. That's Phil Weiser. A leather ski glove company based in Sweden was in the midst of an aggressive growth plan here in Colorado. Hestra had moved into an Arvada facility twice the size of its old one. New hires were coming in to fill that space. But that is on hold with the escalating tariff war between the U.S. and China. Dino Dardano is president of Hestra USA and is on the phone. Hi, Dino. Good morning. Uh, This conflict has affected any number of industries in Colorado, from ranching and farming to retail. Last week, the Outdoor Industry Association, based in Boulder, sent a letter to the Trump administration saying that the trade war will, quote, devastate one of the nation's strongest industries. Uh, That's a strong word. Do you think it's the right one? I absolutely do. You know, we were uh, subject to the list 301 tariffs that rolled out last fall, and uh, we took a 10% hit to our bottom line uh, because of, you know, our leather gloves being imported from China. Um, And the next step is list four, which has been released, but uh, not yet formalized. And if that goes into play, everything else, uh, which includes skis, boots, all all outdoor types of uh, Apparel, uh, footwear will be subject to that list. So, um, unfortunately, Hestra, you know, is a leather ski glove manufacturer, and we've been subject to this over the last uh, eight months. But uh, if it goes to the next level, it's going to be devastating for the outdoor industry in Colorado. Help us understand what the next level means. Uh, give us the the numbers yeah. here. So the current administration uh, levied has been rolling out uh, tariffs along the way over the last, uh, I think, year and a half. And in uh, last September, we were identified as uh, having products imported from China that were subject to the what they call Schedule 3 list. Um, on that was a plethora of, of you know, like you said, agricultural, steel. There was a lot of uh, consumables on that list. Um, Leather ski gloves as well as baseball gloves were on that list, uh, mm-hmm. knit hats and um, helmets. Um, our organization, SIA, working in uh, conjunction with other manufacturers, was able to get ski helmets off the list, and I believe it was safety seats, uh, children's safety seats for cars. So um, we did not pass that uh, increase along to our consumers. We internalized that. Um, now it's went from 10% to 25%. That went into effect two weeks ago. So we're a bit off from our shipping season. So we're, we're kind of wait a wait and see approach right now to see if in fact the 25% will come into play. Right. That's not Beyond clear that, yet. Yep. It is not. Well, that is in place. So that is active, but it's really depends on when you're shipping your product into the U.S. Huh. Yeah, so the the more devastating uh, list has been released uh, by the U.S. Commerce Department. It identifies all the other products, I think it's $350 billion worth of products, that were not included in the previous list. And that is scheduled to go into effect on, I believe, June 27th. Um, obviously, the administration can do this or not do this, but 
we're all very concerned in the outdoor industry that if, in fact, this does happen, it's really going to preclude people from participation, especially in the ski industry that I'm, I'm very involved in. Uh, can you help us understand what role China plays in uh, production for Hestra? So basically, we have four factories worldwide. We have two in China that are our longest-running factories, and we own those in joint ventures. So they're, in fact, employees of our company globally. Um, over the years, we realized that things were changing in China quite rapidly, and we had a long-term plan to shift production to Vietnam and then our Hungarian factory, which is located in Europe. Um, but unfortunately, with this tariff situation, we've had to really accelerate that plan. Um, for years, you know, China has been leading in, in apparel and footwear and, you know, sewn products manufacturing. Um, these industries are pretty much impossible to bring back to the U.S. Uh, due to the cost of labor. Um, it's just not a, a reality that it could happen. If it could, we would do it. Um, but so what we're doing now is shifting a lot of our U.S. production into these other factories, but we can't pull the rug out, for lack of a better analogy, on our, our Chinese partners. Um, you know, they've been with Hestra for countless years and have been a big part of our growth and success. Uh, in that letter to the president, the Outdoor Industry Association also wrote, we appreciate the administration's commitment to negotiate an agreement with China that will address long-standing concerns about China's industrial policies and protect U.S. intellectual property. So do, do you share that view? Do you have some hope here that uh, in the long run, the relationship with China may be bettered? Absolutely. You know, I think this intellectual property doesn't really affect us, but it does. Um, what's to say somebody doesn't take our patterns or, you know, some of our technology that we use in our handware and utilize it elsewhere in, in another factory in China? So this has been an ongoing concern, and the current administration has really drawn a hard line on this. And I think this is fundamentally the number one thing behind this whole tariff initiative. The, the unfortunate circumstance is that there's been some miscommunication that China is pay, paying these tariffs, this $250 billion of tariffs, and that's not the case. Um, we as U.S. company owners and, you know, consumers are wow. the ones that are going to pay the price for this. It's an add-on tax if you look at it. It's, it's basically, you know, for goods that are coming into the U.S., if you look at ski gloves, for instance, it's 15%. So now we're talking about another 25% add-on in, in tariffs, so a total of 40%. We do not have those types of margins. So right now, we've put a stop on all of our expansion plans you know, for this upcoming fall, uh, all of our hiring. Um, and it's really unfortunate because our brand is doing quite well, and we're seeing a nice growth spurt, but this is definitely going to affect things. Hmm. Uh, tell me a bit about Hestra. I mean, as we said, you're based in Sweden, uh, and yeah. you say that 80 years of making gloves has taught you that every day is different. Uh, That's right. I suppose that includes what's happening with, with the tariffs. Uh, but these are, these are fairly high-end gloves. Isn't this a market that can absorb a little bit of a price hike? You know, I, I would have thought so. And I think on the ski side, yes. But we also, so Hestra, as you said, is 83 years old, uh, four generations of family ownership. Um, we actually produce gloves for the ski markets. That, that's primarily our business. But we also do high-end fashion gloves as well as work and in, uh, garden gloves. 
So, you know, definitely, you know, on the high-end fashion side, yeah, maybe they could afford a, a reasonable increase of 10%. But when you're talking, you know, upwards of, you know, 25% on top of what the price is currently, um, we're concerned about the volume of our business and our growth being diminished because of that. Uh, consumers at a certain point will not elect to pay, you know, hundreds of dollars for a pair of gloves. And so your future operation in Colorado, it sounds like, very much depends on the outcome of these negotiations with China, in short. It does, definitely. And we're pushing hard to expand our operations in Vietnam currently. We opened that factory two years ago, and uh, we've already planned to double the size. The challenge becomes in, in educating individuals how to sew gloves. It's a very labor-intensive, hands-on type craft. Dino, and thanks so much does, for being it, with us. I'm going to have to end you, okay, cut you off sure. there. Yeah, I really appreciate right. it. He's Dino sure. Dardano, president of Hestra USA, the Swedish-based glove maker, which recently opened a new facility in Arvada. And we discussed the escalating tariff wars between the U.S. and China. Students who graduated from Morehouse College over the weekend got more than their diplomas. Billionaire Robert F. Smith, who grew up in Denver, announced he'd pay off their student debt. This is my class, 2019. And my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. Now, I know my class will make sure they pay this forward. And I want my class to look at these alumnus, these beautiful Morehouse brothers, and let's make sure every class has the same opportunity going forward. About 400 students graduated Sunday from Morehouse, a historically black college in Atlanta. It's estimated Smith's grant to pay off their loans will add up to tens of millions of dollars. Smith also donated $1.5 million to the college for scholarships and a new park on campus. Smith is a fourth-generation Coloradan and the CEO and chairman of Vista Equity Partners, a software and technology investment firm. Colorado Republicans are coming off a tough election cycle and legislative session. Democrats passed laws unpopular with conservatives, from stricter oil and gas rules to a red flag gun law. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland sat down with the GOP's Steve House to talk party strategy. Hi, Steve. Thanks for being here. It's always good to be with you, Venta. So first off, you are the CEO of the state party and Congressman Ken Buck is the chairman. And the Colorado GOP has never had a CEO before. It's more like a chief operational officer than it is a CEO, pure and simply. So all the work that the chairman typically would do, going county to county, implementing strategies, dealing with volunteers, looking for for help on how the counties raise money, et cetera. Those are the duties that I have. Ken's primary responsibilities are overall fundraising, engagement with the Trump campaign, and he is working on messaging. Coming off a very tough election cycle, how do you regroup? I think voters right now are taking the economy for granted in a way. Everybody seems to be you know, happier with what's going on. The unemployment rate's low. Wages are rising, especially for the bottom 10 percent. 
But we have to address healthcare. We have to address education. We have to address immigration and some of the other key issues. I think we didn't do that very well in 18. And I think that's what cost us this election, at least in part. And we got to do better in 2020. In the House right now, we only have one Republican lawmaker from Jefferson County. What's your vision for attracting some of these suburban voters in counties that have typically been swing counties? Or are there other counties you think Republicans will be more engaged in that you haven't been as much before? Yeah, I think Jefferson's a great question and a great example because there were two seats we lost there. Um, Both of those seats are typically been held by a Republican and they need to turn back around. I think the, the way you get them there are three things that have to happen. First is you got to address health care. Second is you really got to deal with education because there's a lot of folks in Jefferson County who've gone through this roller coaster ride of board changes, recalls in education. A lot of battle lines were drawn over education there. And then I think on top of that, Healthcare affects them like it does everywhere else. There's a lot of young moms, young parents out there. And I think we've got to attract men back to the to the voting process. There's been a lot of men who didn't vote in 2018. I think they have to come back and, and they have to be involved in it as well. So I think we're going to go after all three of those things. The vice chair of the party initiated a recall petition against Democratic Representative Tom Sullivan, known for sponsoring the red flag gun law. Ken Buck issued a statement saying that was in her capacity as a private citizen and that he's monitoring the recall, if you will. And this is something you coach. I mean, you've seen more state chairmen. You've interviewed other people uh, who've been in the role in the past. When you become a state party officer at any level, it's really hard to separate your private citizen life from your state party officer life. And I think what Christy did was file it as a, a citizen of HD 37. And, you know, Ken is right. She filed it as a citizen. She didn't file it as a party. We wouldn't file a recall petition as a party. That's just not something we would do. And I do think that, you know, we're going to see what happens and watch it. When Ken Buck was elected to lead the state party, he endorsed the idea of recalls. What's the overall goal? Because it it's certainly in the House, even recalling a few members, your party is not going to gain the majority there. The issue with the House as well is that recalling somebody in the House and then having an election a year later, the time frame is so compressed versus, you know, when you recall somebody in the state Senate, especially if they've just been elected, you know, there's a four-year window there that you can have an impact on. I, I think the general rule on recalls are it's in our Constitution. It's allowed. If citizens want to raise the issue because they're upset with what's going on and they can get enough other citizens to support it. That's fine. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think every situation warrants a recall. That's for sure. However, from the party's perspective, you know, there are angry people. Many, many angry people about S- Senate Bill One Eighty One. There's people that were angry about the vaccine bill. There's people that were angry about the sex education bill. They need an outlet for that anger. And as a party, we are a membership organization. When our members come to us and say, "I want to exercise my right to do this," we say, "That's why you have that right." And then if it looks like there is a tangible opportunity to make a gain that will not only serve us politically, but will serve us in terms of future legislation and, and you know getting our agenda passed because we think we have the better agenda, then we're going to support it. Do you think there's going to be more of an active role potentially, whether it's signature gathering or other aspects? I think the answer is in the digital age, there's more to be gained more to be, you can get precision politics is what I'll call it, right? So you have this opportunity to 
take data that's given to you directly by a voter, matching that up with social media data and other things you have, and you can target voters in a precision way. I, I think there's something to be gained by that. Yeah, if you think about how a town hall works, right? I've gone to town halls for some of our, our congressional representatives, and you get people in the audience and they're yelling and screaming about a particular issue. You would love to be able to capture, first of all, their perspective. If they have a new idea, that would be wonderful too. And you'd like to identify that person and see what their sphere of influence is so that you can go communicate with them and try to share ideas and, and win their support. Recalls are a way of doing that door-to-door, social media contact to social media contact, telephone call to telephone call. Do you see it as a dramatic shift in how the parties operated in these areas? I don't think it's a dramatic shift. I think there still are challenges with doing a recall. I mean, it's not an easy process to go through. You still got to get signatures. You still got to raise money, uh, those types of things. So I don't think it's a radical departure for us. I think just think that we've evolved as a digital-based society, as an awareness of what works and doesn't work in politics. We know how important issues are. We know that very few unaffiliated voters out there are going to be persuaded based on a party platform. Most of them are going to be persuaded based on an issue. This is an awareness level that's different probably than it was four or five years ago. So right now we want to hear them out on issues, and this is one of the ways you can do it. One thing I want to ask is just, what do you think of Governor Polis so far? There's two aspects to this. One is, uh, Governor Polis is a leader. I, I've seen him interact with a lot of people. Uh, I've met him myself in the past. I think he's being exactly who he said he was going to be. And I, I think everybody should respect someone who says they're going to do something and does it. Um, whether you like what they do or not is a totally different story. I think he is he's not being nearly as innovative on some of the major issues we need, like health care. I do think he should look at some of the waiver states and see what they've done. Because, frankly, there's two choices. You either get the taxpayers to subsidize Medicaid across the board and make them all in a risk pool where everybody pays high premiums, or you do what the other states have done, giving the taxpayers a break, not taking their taxes down because our taxes are still going into those federal subsidies, but at least their premiums are going down so that there's more money in their pocket. I think some of those things on health care, especially since he's shown to be somebody who has a great interest in health care, I think he may have you know, claim to be an expert in some categories. I'd like to see him do a lot more with that than he's done. But in general, I can't fault him for going in the direction he said he was going to go in because he got elected. And that's what, you know, being his integrity should take him to do. Okay, well, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland, speaking with Steve House. He's CEO of the Colorado Republican Party. A Colorado man had a plan to move to Egypt, just as the revolution started there. Journalist Peter Hessler, who lives in Ridgeway, was undeterred by the unrest of the Arab Spring. He still moved his family there, exploring Egyptian culture, politics, and history, from the lives of pharaohs to modern-day garbage collectors. Why garbage collectors? We'll get into that. His new book is The Buried, an Archaeology of the Egyptian Revolution. And Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on the show. You, your wife, Leslie, and your twin one-year-olds, I think, right? They were one at the time? 17 months, yeah. 17 months. Uh, got to Cairo in the fall of 2011. Protests were raging. Uh, we've got tape from Tahrir Square just before longtime President Hosni Mubarak resigned. Hey! 
they saying that? Uh, the people want to overthrow the regime. This was the chant of the revolution started in Tunisia. And it was picked up in other countries as part of the Arab Spring as this movement sort of spread. Um, you know, it was it was very significant because the emphasis is il shab, the people. You know that this was the first time that it wasn't just a battle between different leaders or different factions. I mean, they were speaking in the voice of the people, the common people. We need to change this system. Now, that would strike people as rather every day in the United States of America that the people would be calling for change. That was unusual. Yeah, you know, the history there is very, uh, like many countries in the region, Egypt was often occupied by foreign forces, long history of colonialism, followed by periods of authoritarianism and basically military-backed dictatorship. So, you know, there, there is no tradition of democracy there before the Arab Spring. You reported on the revolution, on Mohamed Morsi's election, his removal from office, and Abdel Fattah el-Sisi's rise to power. But at the same time, in the background of this book is the ancients. And it strikes me as so fascinating, the, the concept of time in Egypt. One of the reasons that I wanted to go to Egypt is because of this ancient history. I find that fascinating. And I'd previously lived in China for 11 years. So I, I like this combination of being in a modern, vibrant country that also has this incredible ancient tradition. Um, and so I spent a lot of time on archaeological digs in the south of Egypt, which is where the culture first developed, and got to know Egyptologists. And you, you start to learn about how ancient Egyptians thought and what they, how they described their world. And time was one of the things that really jumped out at me because they didn't see time the way that we do. It wasn't straightly linear. They didn't write history the way we did. They had two different words for time. One of them was neha, which is a time of cycles, like the cycles of the Nile River, the cycles of the seasons, the cycles of the sun. Um, and the other type of time was jet, D-J-E-T. And that's sort of like, it's very hard to define in English. It's almost like the eternal, but it's the eternal present. It's almost time without motion. It's the, where the the pharaohs go once they die. Yeah, the, yeah pharaohs are in, in the gods. They, they're in jet time. You know, the pyramids are in jet time. When you make a mummy, you're, you're trying to put that individual in jet time. You know, and it's interesting, where did these come from? Um, you know, probably the most insightful Egyptologist, I spoke to about this, a man named Ray Johnson, who's at the University of Chicago, he, he believed that it came from the landscape because you have the Nile Valley, you know, which is this incredibly fertile place where the river has its annual cycles and people have always depended on those cycles. And this created this sense of, of cyclical time. And then right next to it, you have the desert. And the desert in Egypt is not like you know, it's not like going to southern Colorado or places that are dry. I mean, there's absolutely nothing there. I mean, it's totally stark. Mm. And he thought that that created this sense of unchanging permanence, you know, and, and that other sense of time. When you look at the cyclical sense of time, you know, the time that's about the flow of the Nile, for instance, do you see how that reverberates in Egyptian politics that that there are cycles and that there's repetition? They saw it in ancient times. I mean, they they weren't really interested in progress in the way that we would. They didn't see, you know, history as a straight line and we're trying to go somewhere. It's more that things recur, the pharaohs come, the pharaohs die, the new one comes. And within that framework, you do see very similar patterns in terms of political strategies. You know, pharaohs, this, this was an incredibly stable system. I mean, it lasted from, you know, 3000 B.C., until about 300 BC, you know, that the Egyptians, you know, pharaohs were in power. And so it's, it, it was a remarkably stable system. Did the revolution change that? 
Yeah, I mean, m- many things had changed, of course, because Egypt has had these waves of foreign invaders, the Ptolemies, the Romans, the Persians, to modern colonialism with the British and the French. You know, so one of the amazing things about Egyptian history is you had this long period of, of the pharaonic years, but then from about 178 or so BC, that was the last Egyptian who declared himself pharaoh. From then until 1952 AD, there was not a single Egyptian in power. I mean, this was a country that wow. for many years was ruled by foreigners. I mean, these figures we think of like Cleopatra. Cleopatra was Macedonian. She's not Egyptian. Somebody like Muhammad Ali, who was the great reformer in the early 1800s, he was Albanian. You know, so Egypt was always ruled by outsiders, and this has a big impact on the country. And so it's not a place that had this kind of self-determination that you see in democratic societies. And so the Arab Spring was part of this process of the 19th century trying to take control of their country and trying to reassert themselves. Well, uh, let's go from all of that to garbage collection, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) Because one of the people you focus on is a garbage collector named Saeed. Uh, Will you read a passage about meeting him? Yeah, you know, because one of the first things that happened when I when I moved into this apartment in central Cairo is that the, the landlady gave me the various instructions of how things worked. And she said, well, for garbage, you put your garbage outside this door and the, and the guy named Saeed will pick up. Well, who does Saeed work for? He doesn't work for the government. He doesn't work for any private company. And I said, well, how do I pay him? And she's like, you have to work that out with Saeed. You know, and there's sort of a mysterious thing. And for somebody, I'd lived in China for more than a decade where everything's always very, very clearly defined. So anyway, this is when Saeed finally came after picking up our garbage for about a month and and the first time I met him in person. Yeah. And then I'll ask you about how this relates to yeah. some of the larger themes. He stood barely taller than five feet with short curly hair and a well-groomed mustache. His shoulders were broad. And when he held out his hands, I noticed that the veins on his forearms bulged like those of a weightlifter. Speaking Arabic slowly for my benefit, he explained that he was there to collect the monthly fee. I asked him for the amount. It's whatever you want to pay, he said. How much do other people pay? Some pay 10 pounds, he said. Some pay 100 pounds. How much should I pay? You can pay 10 pounds, or you can pay 100 pounds. (laughs) He wouldn't bargain in the proper sense. Those numbers never moved. He dropped them like end lines on a football field, and then he left me with all that empty space. Finally, I handed him 40 Egyptian pounds, the equivalent of six and a half dollars, and he seemed satisfied. Uh, What a foreign concept this must have been for you. It's foreign, but it also makes you very nervous, you know, because as an outsider, your great fear is of doing something wrong or misinterpreting something, misunderstanding. You're doing this all the time. And so when you have these situations that are very unclear, it makes you very nervous. And in a language that you were just beginning to acquire. Yeah, we'd studied Arabic intensely for two months before going there, and then we were having tutorials every day. So, uh, you know, we were making progress, my wife and I, but I mean, I had a long way to go. Why focus on a garbage collector? Yeah, you know, I got interested in him because, first of all, after that meeting, I realized that I was seeing him everywhere in the neighborhood, that he was always out on the streets and he was a very visible presence. Later, I kind of learned that, well, this is how he, you know, because nobody's obligated to pay him. But if he's there and people run into him, they feel more obligated, you know, and they were, they're reminded that he's doing this service for them. And I realized also he wore very dirty clothes and he did that deliberately because then he, people rem- remember this is the kind of work Saeed's doing and he's doing this for us. We owe him something because he's not a garbage man in the American sense. He doesn't wear a uniform. He doesn't work for a company. He has no benefits. He depends, in a sense, on this PR campaign that he's conducting in the neighborhood while he's also collecting the trash. So that interested me. But then what really interested me was when he started bringing me things from the garbage, various medicines or foreign objects. And he would ask me, what's this worth? What does this do? 
And then I started to understand, oh, he's sorting this stuff so intimately. It's all being hand-sorted, and he knows an enormous amount about the people in the neighborhood, including me. What does it say about Egypt and its systems or lack thereof to you? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the characteristics of Cairo in particular, but Egypt as a whole. Um, it is not very systematic, and yet somehow things function. You know, like this garbage system, to me, seemed crazy. Nobody's paying this guy officially. He doesn't work for anybody. But he's he's incredibly hardworking, and he is supporting himself. I went to his home, and he you know he had a nice home. He he did quite well. And the system as a whole, nobody ever planned it, and it was just different waves of migrants moving into Cairo, finding a niche in the garbage world. To the point where, for example, at one point in the 1920s and 30s, there were Christian Coptic Christian migrants came in from Upper Egypt, which is the south of Egypt, and they found a niche in garbage because they could raise pigs, which Muslims of course could not. And when you raise pigs, you can feed the organic matter that comes out of garbage to the pigs. And the outcome was a very efficient system. You know, they recycled about 80 percent of what they collected, at least before the government started to mess with the system. And that's twice the recycling rate in the United States. You know, this is characteristic of Cairo. Most people, like 65 percent of the population in Cairo, live in neighborhoods that are not legally built or planned. They're hmm. called Ashwayat. And, and so this type of self-organization is characteristic of the place. It was also characteristic of the revolution itself. How so? There were no real leaders. You know, this was one of the issues of the revolution. Who was in charge? You can't even really point to a party. There were different groups, like the April 6th movement and so on. But generally, it was a leaderless movement, which in some ways people found very impressive. The, the Egyptians, young Egyptians in particular, sort of thought parties were necessarily corrupt. They liked the idea of a leaderless movement. But it did have a real cost in the long run because these sort of informal systems will function up to a point. But then you reach a point where you would like to see some structure to it. I mean, what if Saeed gets sick? What if he gets hurt, you know, doing this kind of work? There's no health benefits or somebody like that. There's no retirement. You know, what if his knees go bad from hauling this stuff? So these guys are usually done in their 50s, and then life is very hard for them. And and the same thing for the revolution. Hmm. You, you can have this great movement, all of these people gathering on Tahrir Square. Mubarak steps down. But what comes next if you don't have parties, if you don't have leaders? How do you negotiate? So it was sort of one of the tragedies of, of the revolution. You said uh, something in passing quickly earlier that I just want to glom onto, that lower Egypt is in the north and upper Egypt is in the south. Here's how you write about it in the book. The ancient Egyptians first divided their land into upper and lower a classification that confuses moderns who orient themselves by compass rather than river. South is up, north is down. This is my favorite line. The imagination has to be recalibrated in this part of the country. It's always confusing people. You say Upper Egypt and they assume, you know, that this is going to be in the north, but that's the delta. And, and, and we have to think like the pharaohs thought. I mean, they were the ones that named it. And it's upper because the river runs that way. I mean, when the Egyptians first went to Mesopotamia, they called, you know, the land where the river runs backwards because they just thought all rivers go from south to north. If they saw the Mississippi, they'd think it was, you know, that it was a mess. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with journalist Peter Hessler of Ridgeway, Colorado. He's on staff at The New Yorker and received a MacArthur Genius Grant. His new book about his five years in Egypt is called The Buried, An Archaeology of the Egyptian Revolution. And uh, throughout this time, you shadowed archaeologists at important sites around Egypt. I wonder how it was to be so focused on modern developments and the ancient developments at the same time. 
it was more a matter of balance to me. You know, they offset each other. You know, Tahrir is an overwhelming place often. You, you know, thousands, sometimes, you know, tens of thousands of people on the square. These political events are intense. People are very worked up. You know, it can become your entire world. You can have a kind of tunnel vision. And I found a it bubble, very... bubble, really. Yeah. I, yeah. I, can fi- I found it very useful to have this pattern where I would spend time doing the modern stuff in Cairo and then periodically I would make my trips to the south and be on an archaeology site where there's very few people. You know, these, these places tend to be very empty. The archaeologists are working very slowly and methodically over long periods of years. It was a nice contrast and it reminded me that sometimes you got to step back a little bit and try to get some perspective on what's happening. You left Egypt in 2016. What do you think the future holds for the country? I think at this point, it's hard to see positive effects from the revolution. This is one of the tragedies of that moment is that in the end, and if you talk to most Egyptians now, they often, average people often say, Mubarak actually wasn't that bad. Maybe we shouldn't have overthrown him. You know, there's almost this sort of buyer's remorse. Hosni um, Mubarak, who had been in power, what, 30 years? Almost 30 years, yeah, yeah when he was overthrown in, in, in 2011. And sadly enough, it damaged the economy, it destabilized society, and it frightened people. People are afraid of this kind of chaos, and so they don't want to see this kind of sweeping change. And they're, they're generally quite content to be back in a you know, military-backed dictatorship. I mean, it was, it was very striking to me when I talked to, for example, Saeed, who I knew very well, after Morsi was overthrown in the coup and before Sisi had come to power. I asked Saeed, who do you want to be the next president? And he's like, I don't care who it is as long as he's Mishtoib which means not nice. As long <laughs> and, as he's not nice. And he said he's got to be Shadid. <laughs> that was a word people always said. We, we have a, our leader needs to be Shadid, which is hard, strict. I mean, he wanted somebody cruel, you know, somebody who's willing to throw people in jail. It's sort of awful. But, you know, it reminds you that this authoritarian instinct runs very deep in the human psyche. I mean, this is another thing you learn from studying Egyptian history and, and not just Egyptian history all over the world. And, 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 you know, democracy is a very fragile thing. The sense of institutions mattering more than strong figures is also a very fragile thing. Yeah, you reflect this beautifully in the book. There, were, there was like a leak of documents and it revealed how Sisi spoke of mm-hmm. his people. Yeah. Sisi often reminded Egyptians of their shortcomings. He said that people slept too late, and he criticized their work ethic. At a meeting of military officers that was recorded and released as part of the Sisi leaks, the general complained that citizens expected Zebelin or garbage men to pick up their trash but wouldn't pay for the service. They also spent too much time on their phones. People are walking around all the time like this, Sisi said, holding an imaginary phone to his ear. No, 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 my son. Countries like this will never grow and have a real will to work and fight. He often sounded like a father hectoring a small child. You are like the very older brother, he told a group of military officers in another leaked conversation. Or the very big father who has a son who is a bit of a failure, not paying attention. Do you miss Egypt? Yeah, I mean, I miss the, uh, especially the travel we did to the archaeological sites. I mean, they're really magical places and there's nowhere else in the world where you can really do that. And, and this was an amazing time to do it because of all the political chaos. Very few people were researching this stuff in terms of journalists weren't going to the sites. And so the Egyptologists tended to be very generous with their time. And I could spend a lot of time on these, in these places. And that, that was great. And we took family trips all over Egypt. We had a car and we drove all over the country. And, and that was also wonderful. 
Uh, your kids were what? Uh, just about six when you left. Them. Yeah, they they were six when we left. So they had a very strong feeling for it. You know, they they were old enough that they and they felt very connected. They still do. They they speak of Egypt very fondly. It was you know the first home that they knew. How's your Arabic? You keeping it up? It's okay. I mean, it slips. You know, I I, I don't have much chance to use it. And to be honest, we're transitioning to China in August. So right now my mind is starting to make this shift because I kind of have to get back to my Chinese. Ridgeway to Egypt and then Ridgeway to China. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's why we chose Ridgeway because in China and in Egypt, we live in these incredibly big, intense cities. Cairo's, you know, 17 million people. Chengdu we're moving is going to be about the same. And Ridgeway, of course, is a little town of a thousand people. So that's our our escape and our break from urban life. It's your palate cleanser. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Peter, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Journalist Peter Hessler lives in Ridgeway, Colorado. His new book is The Buried, an Archaeology of the Egyptian Revolution. You can follow us on Instagram at News CPR. I'm Ryan Morner. This is CPR News.